Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their edtech ideas into profitable businesses. In today's episode of the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show, we have Nathaniel Hainsworth. Nathaniel is a co-founder and senior director at Esoteric Academic Solutions, where he orchestrates research, business, and leadership functions. With a keen eye for growth opportunities, Nathaniel leads the successful launch of new K-12 programs and services both in the U.S. and overseas. His expertise lies in data collection and analysis, focusing on academic achievement, program performance, and college readiness across multiple schools per district. Hi, Nathaniel. Good evening. Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for taking time out for this. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, uh, my, my first question, I was going through your LinkedIn profile and uh, until about 2009 uh, and uh, almost for 13 years, you worked for a bank. And your first experience with something related to education was after that. It says you worked as a community site director. So how did the transition from a corporate banking setup happen uh, from a banking setup into an education domain? Well, what excited me about education, I always uh, had the opportunity to work with students throughout my time as a college student. I was a tutor at the college levels, uh, specifically around math. Um, my specialty is all all math in high school, from basic algebra to pre-copolis to copolis. So I always had a, a, a passion for math. So that's what was, that's, that was one of the reasons why I major in economics when I was at Temple University, because I had the opportunity to work with data. So um, I was working at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. I was a uh, operations specialist, uh, which I was on transition, uh, a trajectory becoming the vice president of my department. Uh, so around 2009, as you mentioned, I there was a financial crisis in 2008 yeah. where a lot of yeah. banks in the U.S. were uh, were happening. Goldman Sachs was uh, getting bailout funds from the government. So around 2009, 2000 to 2009 to around 2011, I went back to school to get my graduate degree in public policy. So my goal was to work in the government agency as a policy analyst or something in that nature at that particular time. But what attracted me most, again, my love for tutoring and test prep gave me an opportunity to start my own business. First, I was working with students who were having challenges with math. Um, that was around 2011. So I worked with an organization in Brooklyn, New York called um, 500 Men Making a Difference, which is a community-based organization. And I was, as you mentioned, the community site director working at a low-performing school. So at the at this particular school, I again, my passion started to unite again at this particular time. So at Boys and Girls High School in Brooklyn, New York, um, I launched Esoteric Academic Solutions with a co-founder of mine who was working directly with me at the school. So we created an assessment that determined strength and weaknesses of the students in this particular school because they had a high dropout rate at that particular time. So um, I created an assessment and this assessment actually helped the students and their trajectory to graduate. So around 2014, we launched Esoteric Academic Solutions with the goal of helping students between grades five through 12 
but at, yet at the same time at the high school level, get them equipped and ready for the SAT and the ACT in their journey to apply to selective or elite universities in the US and globally also, because in this test prep, we included some courses like IB courses or interbaccalaureate courses and AP courses as a preference when they getting their re themselves ready for the SAT when they get into their rising senior year. Got it, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you said uh, you worked as a community site director for uh, 500 men coming together to help. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes. 500 men making a difference. Was that a not-for-profit organization? Was that a not-for-profit activity? It was a, a, it's a not for, it's a non-profit organization to specifically do community service uh, for the area of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it's, it's a local organization, but it's expanding globally. Uh, and this organization uh, was started with a friend of mine. His name is Wayne Devitt. She's the founder of of 500 men making a difference and in this organization i partnered with him in locating lower performing schools in new york in this particular this particular organization that we was working with uh we built a relationship with the principal and this where all this passion for education started for me but then after that uh my organization first started off as to help uh students who didn't have the means to be of uh, to prep for the SAT and the ACT, uh, and then it changed throughout the years because most of my, my parents now are uh, students who are I would say in the U.S. middle class to upper class, so it transitioned from one uh, area of a demographic group to another demographic group, and then it expanded again in our SAT prep uh, globally. So as I mentioned um, before we uh, our session that uh, we work with parents in Honduras, in Switzerland, and uh, all over Central America prepping students for uh, potential options of U.S. schools. Go ahead, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you said after the recession in 2009, uh, you went back to graduate school and you started doing something and, you know, related to public policy. So uh, you joining 500 Men Making a Difference, was it a part-time, uh, you know, side activity? Or was it a choice that you had to make between your public policy graduate school thing and this 500 Men Making a Difference thing? It was, I was actually doing both at the same time. I was a graduate student uh, working with 500 Men Making a Difference. But I did public policy projects. Like, for example, again, uh, working with school districts at this particular time. I was working right. with Newark right. Public Schools and creating a um, evaluation for what they are using called uh, One Newark, which is a uh, an enrollment system, a public enrollment system that uh, works with uh, public schools. Well, in, our, in the U.S., we call it charter schools, which are our public schools, and parochial schools, which are our religious schools. And we created what is called a one enrollment system because each enrollment system requires diff or different types of demographics, different types of parents. Um, so those three was combined in one. And I was part of the team working with Newark Public Schools, which is in New Jersey, and, and creating this platform that impacts students as we seek to as 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 ongoing today. So I was working in different projects 
as far as uh, educational policy and developing platforms and recommendations to uh, clients, usually at government levels. Good. So uh, you choosing to graduate in public policy is what kind of led you into this path uh, of the test prep coaching and education and all that. Would that be accurate? Uh, yes, it has. Because again, um, I was in my uh, pursuit of a degree in public policy at the new school in New York City. Um, what attracted me most about uh, developing esoteric academic solutions is seeing the outcomes. I, I look at the outcomes because I, I constantly keep data and on the students who, who score, say, the highest in is 1600 on the SAT. Uh, I keep track of those students, students who score between 1350 to 1550. I keep track of that. So as I see growth and I see the outcomes of uh, working with students personally and also working with parents and school districts and other places around the world, I see significant changes. So you're right. Public policy is part of the, the overall goal of one when I started Esoteric Academic Solution. So basically, I major in uh, as far as the minor in public policy, educational policy. Got it, Natalia. And uh... You said when you started pursuing or when you started going back to the graduate school to uh, study something related to the public policy, you said you had your sights on a government organization, something to do in, in within the government, right? Of course, you are influencing, um, you know, a lot of things that you set out to. But uh, did you go through a point when you had to kind of stop and decide consciously that, okay, am I going to go private and start something like an esoteric academic solutions or, you know, as against getting into a government organization? So how easy or difficult was that decision if you had to make the decision, I'm assuming? Well, the at some point in my career, I'm thinking about, because in order to impact students, because my goal is always to see students pursue their dreams. Um, and one of the ways I do it as a private organization, I, I'm limited into working with parents. I'm limited in, in working with local uh, school districts. So at some point in my career, um, not anytime soon, I'm thinking about joining an organization like working for the Department of Education and creating policy that can impact uh, the entire nation. Uh, I, again, I'm limited on what I can do as far as a private organization, but if I do decide working for, say, the government, which I'm not going to uh, get rid of my organization because I have a co-founder, I have a team, um, I employ between 50 to 100 uh, uh, employees, some part-time, some full-time, and I, I see the growth of what I'm doing right now, and I see the impact that I'm doing right now, and I also see significant outcomes that um, working with students and their parents, working with teachers, working with uh, the general public, that excites me the most because I'm seeing the differences. I could actually back it up. I have data from uh, close to nine, nine years of working with students and I can see trajectory. So in the future, as you mentioned, some point maybe um, I probably would consider uh, a government agency, probably. Go ahead, Natalia. 
And Nathaniel, you said in, in around 2009-2010 is when the recession was happening and then, you know, you had to kind of maybe come out of the uh, bank job that you had and uh, you start Esoteric in 2014. So there's almost a three to four year gap between that. So how did you take care of your finances in this period of crisis or transition? And when did you start actually making money from Esoteric? How long did it take? Okay, so from 2009, 2010 um, until 2014, um, between that period, uh, I again, as working with 500 men making a difference, they were paying me a small salary. Um, working at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, I had severance. So I had close to seven years of severance at that time, and it was pretty significant at that time. So they paid me for uh, the, the service I did at the Federal Reserve Bank, and I used that fund to fund uh, my dreams, which was Esoterra Academic Solutions. So in doing that, I had to search for funders. Uh, so I created a, what, a, a pitch deck. Um, we, we solicited our business as, as a, a accelerator for our organization. Uh, we received funding from uh, several investors at the, at particular time. And then we launch. So it was a process. It wasn't just uh, I had a dream, but I needed to work it. I need to think about it. I had needed to plan it for possibly in the future. Now, I can admit it. The first year, 2014, when we started Esoteric, it was a challenge. It was a challenge because we didn't have the right resources at that time. I had the right leadership team to lead at that particular time. Also, in my business as working with SATs and test prep as, as one of my functions of our business, it's a challenge in getting uh, participants to uh, to sign up for our organization. As I mentioned earlier, I work with school districts, so you need an RFP to be able to uh, work with them. You need to pa pass a certain backgrounds to work with uh, the federal government. So there's a lot of uh, things you have to do before you can actually become successful. So I would say between 2014 to around 2016, to, I'm sorry, 2014 to 2017, we started getting a profit, but between 2017 and now, uh, we see significant amount of uh, profit from all of the resources that we have. But I can admit also in 2020, when the pandemic hit uh, around March, that, really did something to our business. We truly um, had to reorganize. So I can speak about it later, what I created in 2020. Sure. Go ahead, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, so <clears throat> when you started, when you had this vision for Esoteric, uh, it was not to acquire private students privately, right? Your plan was always to work with school districts and then partner up with them to help students and parents. Is that correct? Uh, that was just one uh, revenue stream at that time. It was partnering with schools districts, partnering with parents uh, and community-based organizations. So that was the three revenue streams that we were looking for at that particular time. Uh, and still to this day, we look at different revenue streams. The most profitable in my business as far as um, SAT and ACT prep and standardized test prep is the school districts, they're working for or getting government contracts. The second uh, gain in revenue stream is working directly with parents. 
parents and students. And then the third is working with community-based organizations. But in order for us to survive in the test prep and SAT, um, you need three revenue streams to stay afloat in this business. You can't focus specifically on one area or uh, one of those areas. Like, for example, um, as I'm speaking of test prep, um, a lot of the partners that we had as far as high schools, um, there's funding cuts. So if I depend on the, uh, uh, the, the, when they have funding cuts, the first thing they cut is services. Okay, so that revenue stream will start to decrease. But I still have working with private uh, parents, uh, working with students, developing program for students, customized uh, test prep for them as another revenue stream. So these three revenue streams that I just mentioned is what keep us going. So then the fourth revenue stream is next to create a e-learning platform that has all the com combination of uh, what I've done throughout the years because I have, uh, I wrote hundreds of articles on education, hundreds of uh, about 10 to 15 on SAT prep alone. I could write up, I have enough material for a book for SAT prep. Got Nathaniel. Nathaniel, uh, please excuse my uh, ignorance or whatever for asking this question. You said, you know, you, you were, you wanted to get funded, right? Now, uh, this business, uh, which uh, seems pretty straightforward or, you know, people just start with nothing and then they grow into something. Why did you want funding? What was your thought process behind getting funded? Because um, the way I thought, uh, the way I think about this business, it's about, you know, uh, getting on board a school district and getting a few students and then maybe you have a few number of tutors and then you kind of, you know, grow as the students come in. Uh, so I'm just trying to understand what was the reason behind having to get funded for this business. Well, um, to get a brick and mortar location, because we were, uh, we were based in New York City in our, when we first started, um, the real estate in New York City to you know have space to work with students uh, in a brick and mortar, you need funding because the rent in New York City, where we were located, I'm, I'm quite sure if you've been in New York City, we were in an area called Union Square and Union Square is in lower Manhattan and the rent in lower Manhattan for for the space that we had, a 700 square foot space was very, very expensive. There was two ways we could have financed that space. It could have been uh, a bank loan or we reach out for funding. Uh, we were successful in funding, but we did uh, grew organically. Uh, when the organization was was uh, getting a profit around 2016, 2017. So that funding that we first started off with was very helpful in the beginning stages. But if it was just an online platform, say if I started my organization um, during the pandemic when everything was you know, no brick and mortar at that particular time, yes, we could have completely did an e-learning platform because now students understand the platform. Uh, and that trajectory, we probably didn't need funding. But in New York City, in the middle of New York City, in uh, Union Square, without a significant amount, uh, because in New York, I don't know if you know, they want 40% uh, of the rent. So say if the rent is $1,000, you need 40 times that amount to be able to put a down payment on a space in New York City. Wow. So okay. the larger the space... Now I said a thousand. A thousand is you can't find anything for a thousand in New York City. 
okay so if you can imagine what we paid in the beginning stages of a brick and mortar uh you can go you can't do it organically in, in okay. this particular case because the space that we need and working with the parents that we were working with you would need a uh significant uh space and also a, a budget for advertising wow i can imagine thank you for sharing that where i live i live in bangalore it's 10 times uh, you said it's 40 times in New York, so it's 10 <laughs> times here. <laughs> that is... <laughs> wow. Got it, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, another point you mentioned, you know, the reason when you started in 2014, you started getting profits only in 2017, you said that was because of lack of resources. Uh, did you mean when you said lack of resources, of course, you needed a license and the government uh, approvals and all that. But when you said resources, did it mean, did you mean people, quality people to work with you? You said... Uh, you said participants were signing up with you. Were there hesitation from people to work with you as well as a company that just started? Well, I had partnerships with um, with first students and graduate students at the new school. The new school is based in Greenwich Village, which is in the heart or the lower Manhattan. But down the street is the NYU. So um, I had relationships with NYU. That was my first cohort of graduate students because I didn't in the, in the beginning stages I didn't work with undergraduate it was more graduate students because um at esoteric because we are in Manhattan the parents expect the certain quality of tutors to work with their kids so we were targeting that particular group okay so but in in the beginning stages of that um we didn't gain a profit because our overhead was too high um, and but the quality of talent that I had, it was I think it was significant. It's just that now, because of after 2020, most of my talent now is coming from different parts of the country. So I have a, uh, more resources to work with as far as the parents and engaging it, their their uh, son or daughter. But the quality of talent is definitely needed, especially SAT prep. If a student who's admitted to NYU um, you need a pretty good score. So I typically use that in advertisement to engage parents to, in, in their understanding of why the SAT prep, why SAT scores are important. Because if I get, say, lower quality talent working with higher quality uh, students, it would be a challenge. So that typically worked at that particular time. Dr. Daniel. Uh, the way you spoke about esoteric in terms of timelines, you said 2014 to 2017 was a building period and 2017 to 2020 was probably sustaining what you had built from 2014 to 2017. And then you said 2020 changed it all and you took a you know, hit and then you know you had to reinvent yourself. So can you talk about what happened from 2017 to 2020 and what exactly happened in 2020 March? How did the things unfold? 2017 to 2020, was some of the best years at Esoteric Executive Solutions. We were getting contracts from different parts of the Northeast. We had contracts in the Philadelphia School District area. We had contracts at Newark Public Schools. We had contracts with New York City Department of Education, which is their public school system. We were getting um, uh, contracts working with private organizations, because sometimes we would do workshops at a private organization and uh, parents were signed up to our particular program as a benefit to the employee. So we were one of the partners 
in that case. So between 2017 and 2020 was some of the, the most uh, prosperous years of esoteric academic solution. Then 2020, as you know, COVID uh, entered the United States in, in like March. So everything just completely shut down between March until I would say September. All of our contracts that we had, as I just mentioned, were completely gone at that particular time because there was no need for it because students were not going to school, okay, at that time. But the private part of one-to-one, -one, again, we lost revenue from that. So we had to think about what can we do in 2020, in March, specifically around March, what can we do to engage parents who are uh, thinking about SAT prep at that particular time? Also, test centers in 2020 were not, uh, they were literally closed. So revenue stream from, from the SAT prep was completely diminished at that time. So what we did was um, we were working with high school students because we had a pool of high school students in our portfolio. And in our portfolio, we created uh, small groups online, um, I, I'll say August, between August 2020, and, and still, we still have some today. We would call those learning pods. Each of those learning pods would have five students in a group using Zoom. And we boost our revenue, but it still wasn't at the level of 2017 to 2020. Uh, it kept us afloat. It gave me an opportunity to keep the employees that I had instead of laying those employees off. It also gave students an opportunity to engage with their current uh, tutor uh, in SAT prep. So everything changed a little bit, just a little bit at that particular time, but uh, we went through it. We survived the 2020, but not a lot of my competitors did. They did not survive in this period because they didn't think of strategic ways to utilize the resources, the human capital that they have, the financial uh, opportunities that was given to them. So uh, we're grateful, but it was, a, I can say it from my experience as a business leader, it was a challenge between 20 March of 2020 to I would say uh, December of 2020 was the most challenging for anyone in my industry. Got it, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you said you know you had three revenue streams when you started off. The first one was the school districts. The second one was working with parents directly. But then in 2020, the school district, the first one was completely out of the thing, and uh, you had to kind of bank on working with parents directly. Now, that exactly. kind of uh, took over as the first uh, important revenue stream for you, uh, I think, right? So, uh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, there must have been a, a way or an amount of energy that you would have dedicated uh, to acquire working with parents, sorry, to look at working with parents in the beginning when school districts was your major revenue. And in 2020, there must have been a way. And, you know, so what was the difference between your efforts in working with parents uh, before 2020 and since the beginning of 2020? Because the reason uh, I'm asking this is uh, the human capital that you would have had uh, would have been more trained to go get your school district contracts and that kind of business. And now in 2020, you're changing completely and focusing entirely on parents. So how was the transition? Um, the transition uh, was a challenge. Uh, the transition... Um, the group that we had, as you mentioned, the group that we had as far as the, the human capital before 2020, is, is, it was intact. But we ha I had to utilize those 
resources because what usually will happen with esoteric academia and working in schools, we will have directors in particular schools, plan it in different schools, and they will have um, associates working under them. Okay, but those particular parent, those particular talent are different than the, the students who will work with. I mean, those uh, t- tutors and uh, teachers are different than the, the ones that would be working privately with students. So it's a different training mechanism when you're working with a school district and you're working with parents and students. So um, I we have a complete professional development and training to, to make that transition because it's it's difficult for, I would say, for a teacher who's specifically doing prep in a classroom to transition to one-to-one. So in order to do that, um, during that period between March of 2020 and I mentioned this, uh, December 2020, there was a training uh, model that I, I created to make that transition. But again, uh, we didn't keep all of our employees, not all of them because we, the, the resources wasn't there, but I could say we kept more than two thirds of them. Got it. Nathaniel, you spoke about uh, teacher transition. Uh, can you also talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the sales team or the people who used to acquire customers? You know, how did they go about transitioning from getting school districts on board versus getting parents on board in 2020? A challenge. <laughs> Whew. That's a good question. Um, getting them on board was tough. It was a, it, it, it was a challenge because um, when you are, this is some of the, things I will never forget. When when you have these contracts, these significant contracts, and they start to deplete, and it depletes at Newark Public Schools, it depleted in uh, the school district of Philadelphia, the uh, New York City Department of Education, they didn't no longer need our services. So we were at a, a, a part of what can we do at this time period? Okay, so the business development team that we have, we still work with them, but we, what we call furlong in the U.S. We had them on roll, but we couldn't pay them the resources they need to uh, get business for us. But uh, we did keep most of them, okay, because most of them we still need advertising. In my business, advertising, having internet presence, um, being uh, uh, having referrals is very, very important. As we transition to e-learning, uh, in the future, I have the talent and uh, the, the program, the curriculum available, but that the transition team uh, between 2017 to 2020, the business development team, uh, working with them in 2020 and today uh, was a challenge. Right. Got it. Uh, so now let's talk about things that happened from 2020, right? Uh, you must, it's a new thing. I'm not sure. Do you still work with school districts like before? Yes. Or you transitioned? Okay, got it. But uh, has are they still your first important revenue stream like before, or now is it the is it equal with working directly with it, parents? It's it's equal because we're still not at 2017 levels. Um, we only still uh, basically we started renew some of the contracts we had and applying for RFP around the end of 2022. I mean the beginning of 2022. Still 2021 was still, uh, they were still thinking about because of budget cuts. Uh, it's I would say it's equal now because now that um, students are aware of Zoom, 
and how to work Zoom. And all, most of our clients are now Zoom. Uh, this typically is not, I'm not quite sure, I wouldn't say it's equal. I would say now, since the transition post pandemic, uh, majority of our revenue stream is coming directly from private, from parents who are looking for test prep. So I, I, I could say that today because we're still in the transition period of regaining those relationships to get those particular contracts because uh, in a two-year period, still, it's still a challenge uh, 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 getting that. But we are definitely, our number one revenue stream is parents and students privately. Wow. So that's what a pandemic did. And uh, do you still want to go back to the uh, times when you... Uh, when the revenue stream was coming primarily from s school districts, or you are now focusing on private tutoring and you know private consulting or therapy? Um, I actually like both, but as far as a, a revenue stream, uh, getting government contracts are more robust versus working directly with parents and students. But because post-pandemic and the rise of Zoom and students know how to use a Zoom, because we were using uh, Zoom before the pandemic. And there was a challenge between students learning the platform. Now I could say elementary or primary and secondary students, they all know how to use it. So in this case, it's easier for us. Now we don't have, like we had before, uh, tutors going directly to parents' homes, because that was before 2020. Now, yep. everything that we do now is online. So the next stage for us is to create an app, basically on all the technology that we have, um, working with a partner right now and developing an app for us. Because I believe that this part of specifically test prep is a global need, and we're trying to fulfill that global need. Uh, but I believe using an app with the talent that I have, we can get there. Right. Got it, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, uh, Esoteric, today, uh, there are so many things when it comes to test prep and admission process and all that, right? Now, what is the split uh, between your test prep and, you know, admission consulting between these two? Is it 50-50 or you're more leaning towards admission consulting or you're, or you're leaning more towards the test prep uh, area of this? Um, we do both. Uh, as uh, I probably didn't mention, but we work with students between grades five through 12. So in each of the grades, we help parents uh, get their kids into more competitive schools. Like, for example, if we're working with students from grades five to 12, we introduce some test prep or some SAT material to students in grades six, seven, and eight. Okay. So in that, we help parents uh, first get their students into a great middle school. In, in the States, middle schools are challenging for parents, okay? Unless you live in certain districts, specifically because I work with students in New York City, and the best public schools, you will need to take a test. This test is called the ISEE, or Independent State Exam. It's, it's an exam to get students admitted into private schools. And also there's a, a standardized test to get students into public great middle schools. So first we do, we uh, coach students as young as fifth to six and seven about what's needed to get into a great high school. Once they get into a great high school through our consulting, we work with the students and plan their entire 
uh, high school years. Like, for example, we plan their pre-college programs. We plan their courses in their high school. So by the time they get to the 11th grade, I mean, the 10th and 11th grade, and their pursuit of taking the PSAT and the SAT, we already have them in our system. They already know how to uh, begin, how to take tests as early as sixth grade, or yeah, I would say six, fifth and sixth grade, how to take tests. So by the time they get to the time where the SAT is actually needed in their rising junior, senior year, they're already prepared, okay? So this particular parent, now that's one group of, st of students that we work with, who work with us be uh, once they in their in the middle school years. But then we get students who already in the 10th or 11th grade and they need SAT prep. In that case, uh, we does, I have a, uh, an assessment, uh, basically an assessment that can tell the strength and weaknesses of students in the particular subject in preparation for the SAT. So when working with students online, right now everything is online, uh, we design customized programs for students who are who are who need test prep between ninth and tenth grade in preparation for the eleventh grade, and in this particular uh, program, everything's customized. Every uh, every uh, class is customized. Every uh, we do multiple practice tests in our programs, and we see great results. Like for example, the average I would say in our organization is between the thirteen fifty no thirteen fifty for the lowest performing student and as high as 1560 or sometimes 1600 for the higher performing students. So it all depends where the student comes, who works with us and what grade level they work with. I always recommend to my parents and school districts, the earlier the student works with an organization like mine, the, the greater the outcome before they get to take the final SAT prep in their junior year and senior year so it all depends when the student uh works with us the younger the better wow i didn't i thought uh the pursuit of finding good colleges only starts after high school i didn't know there was uh, a need in the middle school level itself uh so uh, what up until the fourth grade the kids go to just about any school near where they live and only focus on getting into good schools after that? Is that how it works there, Nathaniel? Um, not every state in the, in the country, but in New York City, where the schools are highly competitive. And right. it all depends on where you live, but they are highly competitive. Um, most students who, who wants to go to schools like MIT, Harvard, Stanford, University of Pennsylvania, um, Washington University at St. Louis, Georgetown. These students already know, already know by the time they in the seventh grade, this is where they want to go. Like, for example, last summer, I was working with a student who wants to go to Oxford, Oxford University. He already planned it that he wants to go to Oxford University and he's only in the seventh grade. So the younger you are, the better opportunities that you will have in your pursuit of a elite education in the US. So, but you could come to, we take students from any grade level, but I find with the data that I collected throughout the years, it's the seventh grade is the, is, 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 is a starting point if the student wants to get into a school like that. And we have a, a, a track record of getting students into colleges like MIT, colleges like NYU, but it has to start early. 
Go ahead, Nathaniel. I'm just going to take a little detour uh, about a discussion because this has been a very interesting thing every time that I've spoken to admission counseling uh, experts, right? What is the right age for a student to kind of uh, set sights on what they're interested in or wh when do they kind of hit that sweet spot of uh, figuring out what their passion is? Because that's tied to where they want to go to in terms of, you know, they go to college or whatever it is. So is that... Uh, a thing with your students as well or are these students extra clear in what they want to pursue the ideal age is because you want to create a portfolio um by the time the students get to become a rising senior so in your portfolio what we do is because if this if if the parents work with us early as i mentioned um during the summer we help students create what is called a passion project because in a passion project, it's typically one or two items that you, the student's interested in. So we work with the student in the eighth, in the eighth grade, in the summertime before they get to the ninth grade, and help them find what they're interested in. in student. Most students are uh, like 12, 13 years old. Okay, so they attend. Like for example, last year we had a student who could speak multiple languages. She speaks French. She speaks Spanish. She speaks English. Okay, so we partner with a school in Switzerland that has a summer program that equips students to become uh, more bilingual in specific languages and also uh, helping them develop what their skills could be. So by the time they come back to us, we help, de help them develop what is called a passion project. And in this passion project, it's typically extracurriculum activities because you need that. If you're planning on attending Harvard University, or Columbia University in the future, you need extracurriculum activity. It's a holistic perspective, not just good grades and SAT scores. It's a holistic. So we design all of that for students. But the, the sweet spot, as you mentioned, is that summer between eighth grade and the time they enter high school. So if you can reach a student in the summertime in that, that time period, uh, and they stick with the same project, the same passion project, like for example, a student in the eighth and be becoming a ninth grader, they are interested in global or climate change. We design, we help students find particular programs that specifically around uh, global uh, uh, climate change. So they spend summers in Switzerland, they spend summers in Honduras, all in pursuit of this particular passion project. So by the time they get into the 10th, the 11th grade, they have that same project. So once they enter the rising senior and they're looking for college admissions right now, because the college applications are students are working with now, uh, the committees of these universities will be extremely excited because you don't, I, I, I found in my all of my surveys, because I work with college admissions officers in these elite universities, if you have a lot of extracurriculum activities, it really doesn't matter. It's usually one or two that you're staying with throughout the entire high school years that's attracted and you are the leader of something uh, that makes your application stand out. And in our, in our organization, as far as SAT prep, when we prepare students for the SAT prep, they're ready. They're ready to go. It's just one component of their pursuit of getting into a selective university uh, like Georgetown or MIT. Ahead, the younger you start, the better. Right, right. 
Got it. Uh, Nathaniel, you said, you know, apart from test prep, all the things that you help parents with right from the middle school, you do all these online ever since the pandemic, or do you still have a brick and mortar office to back it up? We do have a brick and mortar office. We transitioned from New York City to Jersey City. On the other side of New York, Manhattan is Jersey City. So we have a small office in Jersey City, but most of our activity now is um, online. It's in person if it's uh, parents and students in New York City. But majority, because uh, we consult parents uh, globally now, and we use the platform of Zoom, we use uh, platform, uh, other platforms to reach these particular parents. But a lot of that business that I was mentioning comes from referrals. I would say 40%, 40 to 50% of the business that we have outside of New York City is referrals. Reference. Got it, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, uh, as far as uh, test prep coaching is concerned, online, right, working with kids, uh, do you just use Zoom and does that suffice or do you use a host of other tools? We use a host of other tools. We use uh, Zoom. We use uh, a whiteboard called Lumna, Lumnu. We use another whiteboard, uh, uh, what is it called, Zeitboard. So we use different platforms, specifically whiteboards. Our goal is basically um, the first thing uh, my tutors do when working with students is first they do a lecture. Okay, they create a, I have PowerPoints on specific uh, topics in the SAT prep. So they first they do a lecture. The second part of a customized plan for a particular student is to look at their diagnostic assessment, where their strengths and weaknesses are, and work with them in those particular areas to build their strengths. Okay, so in that section of it, they then uh, do problems. They solve problems on the whiteboards, as I mentioned, because we use multiple whiteboards. Then we use another test prep. We partner with a, another test prep uh, service who does the practice test for us. So students in our program is typically depends on how much the student need as far as because it depends on a package. Like, for example, we have 10 hours, 20 hours, 30 hours, 50 hours. So it all depends on that and the length of the SAT prep. But we use different te technology. Um, but the primary is just a basic whiteboard that has, you can upload files, students can share documents with one another, uh, and that's how they learn. But our goal is to, to strengthen their uh, weakness in a particular SAT, prop, uh, SAT problem, I mean, practice problem, and eventually um, test them on it. Because you probably know internationally, there's the SAT digital, right? It's, yeah. it's changed yeah. a little bit versus uh, we still have paper and pen, I mean, paper and pencil in the US. That ends December 2nd, but March of 2024 is digital. So we now have to reorganize another strategy for the digital SAT. But the digital SAT, it could be beneficial for our students because uh, I'm looking at different ways of how, like for example, uh, with the digital SAT, if the student scores well, right? They're getting all the answers right, the test algorithms will make the test a little harder. So in that process, I will have to now look at the uh, 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 practice digital SAT and redesign how we approach students. Because if this test is getting easier uh, when you have uh, you answering harder questions, then 
you need a different strategy to approach that. So we can't use the same strategy for students who are taking it in person and with their paper and pen versus now, because it's all digital. Got it, Nathaniel. Um, Nathaniel, another question that I wanted to ask was you mentioned about SAT going digital. You already spoke about how you have to kind of reorganize because uh, your first digital SAT happens in March 2024. So uh, have you started taking steps towards that, uh, you know, transition? Or are you yet to start working towards, you know, meeting what may be the needs uh, for a digital SAT preparation for students? Well, currently, um, I'm attending conferences and conventions on the changes of the SAT. For example, um, I just attended one with the National Association of College and Admissions Counselors. And in one of the workshops, they do have uh, the college board representatives to teaching us uh, different uh, professional developments on the SAT and its changes. Um, When I create a program, I need to know exactly what exactly the needs for my students, because the client is my student. Uh, and my goal is for my students to get that between 1350 and 1550 score. Okay, so in that process, I learn as much as I can, specifically from these conventions and these conferences, and actually um, from the college board itself, because the college board does offer professional developments for teachers, not necessarily private uh, organizations, but for teachers. But since I have relationships with teachers unions, sometimes I get an opportunity to attend those professional development sessions that the college board um, offer to, like for example, New York City Public, New York City Department of Education uh, uh, teachers. But you need that, that connection of uh, the college board because the college board is based in New York City, so they always offer opportunity to learn more about their products and services. And I'm usually the first one at the door to, to to take advantage of those opportunities, to learn and to grow. So when I design my program, it's specifically targeting the uh, what are the changes? Because I've been working so long with the SAT. I've seen it change four times in, in the last 10 years. So it's yeah. been changing and changing. So you have to be above the curve, of, above your competitors, because in my industry, um, as you know, the what, SAT prep, there's thousands of competitors. That's right. And Nathaniel, one more thing that you mentioned early on, you know, about 85% of the universities going test optional. Now, uh, have you experienced that the students ever since it's gone test optional, ever since it's got test optional, has it been in the beginning, I heard there was a slight dip in the number of students taking the test because they made it optional. But after a certain point in time, everybody realized that it's better to take the tests despite of universities making it optional. Is that true in your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Schools like the University of Texas at Austin, um, MIT, Georgetown still require the SAT. So it's still uh, an option. I, I highly recommend to my parents that if the student scores above a 50, I mean, 75 percentile on the SAT, they should submit their score. It does not hurt for a student to submit their score. It makes them competitive if they submit their score. Um, unless the student, if they don't submit the score, as, as far as test optional, then they must have a, a truly great portfolio. Um, but the SAT helps. It doesn't hurt. 
it gives students the opportunity, um, letting the college admissions committee know that this student is serious about test prep and they're using it as a, a measurement for their success at a particular university, especially uh, schools like California Institute of Technology, the Massachusetts Inter uh, Institute of Technology, Georgetown, they all still accept it. University of Florida, they still accept the SAT as a requirement. So even the elite universities, okay? I've never had a student in my close to nine, ten, 10 years of working who was admitted to an ID without a test score. So I let parents know that early in their preparation for the SAT. It's, it's so important that they at least make the minimum. But if they don't, unfortunately, if a student is scoring, if the average, say, at uh, Harvard is 1560, and a student on the SAT prep gets a, an average score around 1100, then in that case, I don't recommend students to submit a score. But a student who really works hard, who practice really hard, uh, those scores do matter. So it's something that I truly tell my parents and schools that it's important that students take the SAT. Not It's not really an option. It's just giving um, students that option, but really it's not a real option. But I'm seeing it in my studies. You, you uh, spoke about working with people on developing an app. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is, is that got to do with the SAT going digital? Well, the app will have, uh, a part of it will be SAT prep as far as students logging in to the student, because uh, similar to Zoom, one part of the app would be uh, test prep, but the other part would be uh, college admissions, some consulting and college admissions. Right. But those two components, as far as the high school level, it would be more of gearing towards that uh, versus the other services that we offer. We all do offer academic tutoring, but in this case, it will focus on those two areas on one single app. It'd be just be uh, a different button that you will pick. So we're in the process of developing that as, as we speak. Uh, I'm working with uh, designers right now on on that area to launch it pretty soon, but we it's just still in the planning stages. Good, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Uh, I've covered almost all the topics that I was uh, thinking of covering with you on the podcast. And uh, thank you so much for candidly answering uh, all the questions and in detail as well. I've got a great amount of insight. Uh, it, despite having had more than 100 episodes, there are a lot of things that I learned uh, that are new today. So thank you so much for that. You're quite welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure meeting you. And uh, hopefully we can do a part two of this uh, podcast and uh, um, let's see in the future. But I, I'm grateful that you, uh, this opportunity and uh, I look forward to if I can see the final results. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, use it as a learning management system, and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.